Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is very, very good to be among you again. It has been, oh my goodness, it feels like a very, very long time. Um, but here we are. So we've been going through Ezra here, and there's a bit that's been covered along the way. So just a quick little recap before we jump into um, chapters 9 and 10 here. So from previous... I was, about to, I was about to say sermons, that is correct, yes, from previous sermons, <laughs> um, we've basically surmised that we as God's people have been called to be united, not to be assimilated, and to have integrity. Um, as for the Israel story here, we know that they've returned to Israel after 70 years, long time, and not only have they now returned to Israel, they've been funded by King Cyrus. Um, to basically go back to the land of their fathers and worship the Lord their God as they were before they went into exile. Really um, quite an amazing turn. They start to rebuild the temple, of course, and as they're doing so, they face a bit of resistance. There's people trying to stop them and intimidate them from doing so. Um, The minor prophets Haggai and Zechariah actually cover a lot of those details about the encouragement to Israel as they face resistance. A lot of that fades upon Ezra's return, and he comes... And he comes back and a, a bunch of stuff gets um, re, reintroduced. Um, the temple is rebuilt and rededicated, uh, which means that, you know, the Levites are able to start, you know, teaching the people the law and they're, start, they're, st- they're able to make their sacrifices for the first time in 70 years. They haven't been able to do this. They haven't had a place to make any sacrifices because they haven't been allowed to. And... They, they got support from successive kings, so not just Cyrus, uh, Darius, and, oh man, I might mispronounce this name, Artaxerxes, thank you. <laughs> um, they get support from all those successive kings to keep doing what they're doing. They aren't told to stop and suddenly go, oh no, we've changed our minds. No, they're, they're able to keep going. Things are looking really, really good at this point. It's very exciting. There's been some weeping and crying, but also a lot of joy. Things are looking good. But then, then chapter 9 happens, and everything just starts getting in a bit of a dip again at that point. But not, not, not for long. So Ezra gets some bad news. Uh, the bad news that he receives from the officials is that there have been Jewish people marrying non-Jewish people. And they've basically started to fall into idolatry again here, okay? And the worst part about this is is that the priests and the Levites are chief offenders here. So it's not just that the people are doing this, it's that the Levites, who know better, the priests who know better, are doing these things. Ezra's reaction to this is quite dramatic. He basically, he he does the the very Jewish thing of, of tearing his clothes and falling down on his face and praying, um, and, not just for, and not just for Israel. He's praying for the people, but he's also, he also includes himself in there. He's not praying for Israel in third person, as if to exclude himself. He, he prays for Israel, including himself. There's a, there's a lot of we talk um, in his prayer, and he recognizes God's goodness in this prayer and Israel's failure to uphold the law as they have been called to. Israel's response is also a little surprising here. They respond um, weeping and crying and on the ground. Uh, They respond humbly to this. Um, There's even a passage along the way that says, you know, in spite of this, in spite of our failings, you know, there is still hope for Israel. 
which is really, really good to see because, um, you know, when you, get, when you get bad news and things start looking really bad, you start kind of going, oh, shoot, uh, what are we going to do now? And it's like, no, 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 there's still, there's still hope. It's not the end yet. Israel then repents. And the way they go about doing this is by agreeing to divorcing their non-Jewish wives, which is quite a big deal. And uh, again, if we're thinking like today, that might seem a bit extreme. So I think a little context might help us understand um, why, they went about, why they went about doing this. So what, what's the big deal, right? First off, Israel has broken God's law. God said, go back to Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy 7, God has made pretty clear to them, okay, when you go into the promised land, you are not going to marry the local populace around you. You're not going to intermarry with, you know, the Ammonites, the Levites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the blah, 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 blah. Okay, there's so many people. Um, but they're told not to intermarry with them, okay? Um, the Levites and priests, again, they knew this, but they still went about doing that. Not good. A lot of marriages that would have happened in this time, oh, excuse me, in this time would have happened for the purposes of business, personal advantage, security, right? In ancient times, we did, they didn't really have, I don't know, the same laws we might have today. A lot of protections for people, right? You, you didn't quite have that 2,000 years ago. A lot of your protection was based on who you were perhaps married to or who your family was, right? Your connections there and so on and so forth. You would be destitute without these things. So it was really, it was a pretty big deal. But the issue here was that a lot of those marriages that the Jews were doing were being done, um, was being done despite what God had said to them, that he would look after them and take care of them. That's the real issue here. So this is more about marrying outside the faith and not, not based on race, not just because they're Ammonites, Jebusites, and all the rest of it. We, we have examples where um, people have married into the Jewish faith that are, I don't know, Moabites. Rahab, she's from Jericho. She's definitely not a Jew. Uh, Moses' wife was definitely not a Jew, Zipporah. And yet, we don't see... Sorry, let me backtrack a bit here. <laughs> so, there are cases where those who converted to Judaism were more than welcome. The issue here is a faith issue. So, what you have is marriage as a covenant that's kind of happening between households. Now, in Nehemiah 6, the next book... Um, which I highly recommend reading next. Uh, we see a good example from a man named Tobiah who ended up causing problems for Israel here. In Nehemiah 6, he's facing some resistance. There are people trying to intimidate him and stop him from rebuilding. Tobiah was one of them, and the reason why that happened was because some Jewish nobles who had intermarried with Tobiah were feeding him information directly. So while all the rebuilding and reestablishing is going on, the Jewish nobles are feeding information to Tobiah saying, hey, Israel's doing this, you know, and oh, Israel's doing that. And Tobiah was not very happy about that. He's an Ammonite. He doesn't believe the same things the Jews believe. And so he was, try he was trying to stop them. And at one point, Nehemiah, uh, at one point, Nehemiah is told that someone's going to try to kill him. And Nehemiah doesn't give in. He keeps going. He keeps going. There's conflicting covenant relationships that can happen through this type of intermarriage. Again, a faith-based type intermarriage here, okay? Because that's what would happen. You wouldn't just marry the person. You would also marry their house and whatever they believed. Okay? Everything would come along with them. Everything. 
So there's, this is probably the number one reason, no, not probably, this is the number one reason why they were sent into exile. There was way too much interfaith marrying, if that makes sense. Okay, and King Solomon was probably the biggest perpetrator here. He kind of led to the downward spiral that Israel kind of going on. How many wives did he have? He had a lot. And each of those wives had different, you know, beliefs, different idols, different gods. And they all walked right into Israel with all of that. Set up their high places, set up their temples, set up their places of worship, all alongside God. God was not happy about that. Israel was called to be set apart to be worshipers of him and him alone. So what are all these other gods doing around here? Getting equal placement. Something is very wrong with that. God cares very much about that. God doesn't share. Okay? He doesn't share his place with other gods. It's either him or it's not. Real important here, though, before we go any further. This is a model for dealing with sin. This is not... This is not a specific model on how to deal with marriage. I do want to make that clear. Because in Corinthians, at least um, according to Paul here, we, there is a, there's a reintroduction. Paul does reintroduce that. You know, we are at least called as believers um, not, to inter, not, to, uh, not to marry those who are not Christians. But we're also told, hey, if there's a marriage that's taken place where someone is not a believer and you are, Honor that. Honor that. Okay? So, as I said, dealing with sin, not just kind of going, oh, okay, we'll just move on from here. It's a, found, it's a foundational issue. The, the, the amazing thing about foundations that I've always been amazed by is that you can't really notice what's really wrong with them until you dig and see what's going on beneath the surface. It's almost too late by the time everything starts toppling over up top. So everything has to be built right on the bottom. And when Israel is reestablishing and re-getting everything back together, right, worship of God and all those practices, right, all the temple practices and things, you know, they were starting to rebuild with cracks in the foundation, which would have led to disaster for them again and probably would have sent them right back into exile. So something had to be done. Uh, this is, we do see this reinforced in the book of Acts. If anybody remembers Ananias and Sapphira, when the church was being established, there was some corruption going on with the two of them, and God quickly removed them from the picture. They weren't allowed to linger. God, God doesn't like corruption. There's a lot of grace, but he doesn't like it. So, at the moment, I've been, I've been pretty bleak, not going to lie. <laughs> okay, so I'd like us to divert our attention briefly here to what God has done for Israel here, okay, to, again, kind of contextualize what's going on here a bit more. So God has left a remnant for Israel when he didn't have to. He was under no obligation to do so, but he left a remnant. He said, I'm going to leave, you know, some of Israel here so that you guys can come back Okay, and that things can be reestablished again. God made a promise to do that, and he kept it. Israel's enemies, those who conquered them, Babylon, now Persia, oh, Assyria, Babylon, then Persia, respectively, are now supporting them. <laughs> um, 
The temple gold is given back to Israel. Their money is given back to them to go and worship the Lord their God in the land of their fathers. How in the world did that happen? Israel wasn't the only nation where this happened, but the fact that that happened for Israel to, to be given such freedom to go back and worship God as they had done before is really, really quite something. Uh, God, is, God is really something. Um, access to God is reestablished. Again, all the temple practices and everything, the, the Levites, everything that they're doing, it's all being reestablished. The messianic promise is still alive. Zerubbabel, he's from the line of David. So when the story, so when the gospels take place, you know, Jesus comes down from that line that lived on, that lived on from that remnant. What's going on here is Israel has basically spat on God's goodness by doing what they were doing. Okay? By not trusting him, they're basically calling him a liar. When God says he's going to look after Israel, right? I'm going to be looking after you. You're going to be my people. You're going to worship me, and I'm going to look after you. I'm going to take care of your needs and everything. I'm going to bless you. Ah, no, no, that's not good enough, God. I need some more security. I need to do this to secure just a little bit more for my family because, you know, while you're, what you're saying is good, but, mm, I don't know. It's a pretty big insult. And it's such an easy thing to do. I, I, make, I make it sound like, oh, look what Israel did. I've done that. I've not believed what God's word has said about a few things through my actions. You know, maybe I say the right things, but I don't do the, sometimes I don't do the right things. <laughs> Praise God, there's a process of restoration here. Again, there's a, there's a lot of grace being extended to us. So prayer and repentance helps us to go through that process. Oh, sorry. Um, it starts with recognizing God's goodness. This is what Ezra's prayer starts with, recognizing God's goodness to their forefathers and to them. And this, in turn, ends up showing up sin for what it is. It exposes the cracks. It exposes the areas where we're not trusting God. This leads to confession. They admit their guilt. You are correct. We are in the wrong. We have spat on your grace, Lord, and we are sorry. There's some accountability that takes place along with this confession which leads into repentance, which in the case of Israel in this instance, the end of the book of Ezra, is a spiritual audit of, kind, of, of some kind where they go, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through and comb every single tribe. And there's a lot of them. That's a lot of people, thousands of people. We're going to comb through everybody, see, see who has intermarried with who, and if things are on the level, fine, and if things are not on the level, then we're going to let things go. We're going to cut the sin out. Jesus had a really interesting way of talking about that in Matthew 18. So, because how did it go? He, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If, or, you know, for it's better that your right hand chopped off than you for you to perish, right? Not that we're called to chop off parts of our body. Please don't take it like that. <laughs> um, but, the seriousness, the seriousness of cutting sin out is very much present there. It must be cut out. And this will lead to restoration. God is in the process of restoring and making things new, yeah? 
Well, there's a process to get us there. And it helps us to recognize Jesus for who he is even more if we're talking about us as believers today and what he's done. So, a good question for us, I think, from that. What, what, what has God done for us as a church over the course of you know, COVID and everything else that's gone on? What's God done for us in the middle of this? Um, when's the last time we counted our blessings? We, I have found that really difficult. I don't know about everyone else. Uh, counting my blessings, I've had some really bad days. Um, you know, but I've always been, but God has, being so good, has always brought me right back to going, do you know how much I've given you? And I've always been so humbled by that. So, to summarize here, with uh, what's kind of taken place in Ezra and what we can maybe take from that as well. If, we're, if, if you're struggling with sin, if there's something you're still like, you know, falling into over and over again, like a cycle, there's still hope. There's always still hope. As long as you are still living and breathing, there's hope. <laughs> Repentance is more than confession, it's action. We make the mistake of stopping at confession sometimes but we have to go one step further. There's a challenge for each generation. Um, Avoiding assimilation with the culture around us, that's tough because that comes with its own set of challenges and it's different everywhere that it is, right? So it's, it's knowing what to do in each of those circumstances. And then of course having integrity um, to be holy as God has called us to be holy. That's what God wants for us. That's the whole process of sanctification and what that does for us as believers. We're being made more into the image of Christ. So that means our direction of travel is towards God and the things of God and what he wants and what pleases him. We, locally, as a church, we've talked about being a reprocessing factory. And to really walk that out, to really live that, that requires us to practice together, together, Prayer, confession, and repentance. Because we're in it together. It's something that affects all of us. All of us. Not just, not just individually, but corporately as well. And that's why Ezra prayed how he prayed. So, with that said, um, we are going to... Oh, excuse me. We... I've lost my place. <laughs> we ha- um, thank you, Suze. Suze is going to come up and uh, finish things up here for us. So, in a minute, we're going to go into communion. We'll have we'll have a time of worship, and then we'll go into communion. But before we do that, I just really want to encourage everyone, um, really, to think about three things. Um, how has God blessed me? Particularly in the last 18 months when things have been really difficult. How has God blessed me? Um, are there things that actually where I'm living my life that's not quite in step with how God would call me to live my life? And then finally, we're in it together. Um, and therefore I'd encourage you, if God has put his hand on your heart and said there's something here you need to cut out, I'd just encourage you to find someone you trust 
to confess to them what it is you're struggling with them with and then ask them to keep you accountable um, and with that in mind I'm just going to read Psalm 139 verse 23 and 24 search me God and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting amen <laughs>